This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Mahatma Gandhi is one that is a name that we know uh, very well. He's a well-known leader uh, in India, and he spent a lot of time fighting for independence, uh, a believer in nonviolence. He led this successful campaign, uh, and he gave an interesting testimony, a story that has been told uh, for at least almost the last uh, 50 to 60 years. And the story really goes this way. According to his own testimony, he wrote this down in a letter he had considered Uh, becoming a Christian. At one point in his life, he was a very well-read man, and he read lots of religious leaders. And uh, as a Hindu, he knew his own faith, but he also was very moved by the teachings of Jesus. He was moved by the, the theology that he would hear about. He was moved by this idea of love and mercy and grace. And so after reading the Gospels, he went to visit a church in Calcutta, And at that church, he wanted to meet with people. He wanted to talk to a pastor. He wanted to learn more about this idea of salvation, this idea of getting beyond and above sin nature as he saw it. He wanted to know more about that. And so when he got to the church, the ushers there refused to give him a seat because they still were in India and they still were following what's known as a caste system, this form of discrimination based on status in life and uh, skin color in some places. Uh, And so it was another form of discrimination. And when he got there, they didn't give him a seat. And he said, well, if Christians have caste systems, I may as well remain a Hindu. This actually gave rise to the famous saying that we now know was said by uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And he said, I like your Jesus, it's your Christians I don't like. This story illustrates the very sin that James writes about in chapter two of his letter to uh, the church that he led in Jerusalem. The sin of partiality, the sin of favoritism, showing favoritism. What happens when we give special attention to one at the expense of another? Favoritism is a sin that, honestly, you don't really hear much about. We were talking uh, uh, here on staff, we were talking a little bit about the fact that when you think about favoritism, we typically talk about uh, uh, how we teach children to play and how we teach children to practice a little form of justice amongst each other. But we rarely think about favoritism as sin in our own lives. As adults, you don't ever, people rarely feel a sense of conviction based on showing favoritism. We never, when we're uh, trying to pray through our lives and uh, repent about things, we rarely are repenting of the sin of favoritism. And yet, the sin of favoritism was rampant in the early church, and it's rampant in many churches today. Let's read James chapter two. Think about the way that he highlights this very heinous sin this sin that has obviously permeated the church very early in its infancy. And it's something that is causing incredible division, but it does more than cause division. 
favoritism, when we practice favoritism, we are declaring something untrue about God. Let's start chapter two, verse one. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions uh, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, when, uh, when I moved down to uh, Atlanta to plant a church, spent a lot of time as a part of a church planting residency, learning uh, a lot about uh, church planting, learning about a lot about some of the things that are helpful when planting a church, learning a lot of things uh, that are not helpful and learning things to avoid and doing that, figuring out how to build vision with people and, and get a vision for church in this area. And uh, that, that, in, that included reading a lot of books, lots of uh, alleged, so-called, sometimes self-professed experts in church planting. And I remember in one particular book, they highlighted something that they had argued was one of the fundamental principles in growing numerically uh, a really good church. How do you get enough people, lots of people to come, to stick, and to stay in your church? And the thing that they relied on was something that has been uh, known going back maybe about 30 years when at the beginning of what's known as the church growth movement, the church growth movement was something that was based on uh, a principle. And that principle is known as the homogeneous unit principle. The idea is pretty simple. Birds of a feather flock together. If you're going to plant a church, if you're going to start a church and you want it to grow numerically, then you need to focus on the same type of people group and focus only on that people group. So the types of music that you pick, the topics you address, issues politically, these things, when you talk about these issues that are specific to that particular people group, you will maintain and grow more quickly than if you try to do some type of multicultural uh, church with people with different views and backgrounds. Ultimately, they were saying people are always going to feel more comfortable with people that are more like them. 
that look like them, that think like them, that vote like them. They're going to feel more comfortable that way. And because most of these churches were predominantly white churches, then that all that did was further the uh, observation that we know Dr. King made so long ago that uh, Sunday morning, uh, 11 o'clock is the most disc uh, discriminatory, prejudiced, uh, separated time and, and segregated time in all of America. What's scary about that is many churches then found it as okay in many ways to practice the sin of favoritism and mask it as preference. Please keep that in mind. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but ask yourself if what you're calling preference is actually favoritism because you may be comfortably in sin. In this letter, we see that James ultimately gives uh, four elements here, or there are four categories or four ways we could divide this passage. You've got James giving a charge or an admonition. Then you see him giving an illustration. Then you see him give the explanation. And finally, we see what the application is here. Uh, it's the perfect sermon outline. These 13 verses kind of lay out so well if you want to separate them that way. So take a look at the first part of this text again. James gives, here James is, we, we've already talked about it. James is uh, the pastor of this church in Jerusalem, the first church, the earliest church about which we have any real record. And here he is leading this church in Jerusalem. Again, Christians who are varying statuses, right? Uh, varying uh, socioeconomic places. Uh, you've got folks who are, who are struggling even more because they already didn't have a lot. And now because of Christianity if, uh, and, and the ways in which Christians are being persecuted, they don't have the same resources to protect themselves that some of the wealthier Christians do. And so you've got this division already beginning in the church. One of the things that we need to know is so interesting. We love to say things like, we've never been more polarized. We've never been more divided than we are now. Just pick up a history book and pick up the Bible. We have always been divided. We've always found reasons to separate ourselves from one another. We've always found reasons and excuses to practice favoritism, which almost always leads to some form of injustice. We've always been divided. It's a part of who we are. Our sin nature would dictate that this is what will inevitably be the case without some sort of supernatural intervention. And so when James starts this part of the text, and he says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he need to say that? Because he knows it is endemic to our nature to show favoritism. It is endemic in our nature to, uh, to confer additional benefits to some at the expense of others, to show favor to some at the expense of others or to the neglect of others. So here James calls, he starts out by referring to his half-brother as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Jewish audience. They would definitely pick up the reference by calling Jesus glorious. This is a reminder of something that's referred to in the Old Testament as the Shekinah glory of God, the very glory that the Israelites saw as they were being led through the desert. So James is still saying the one thing that should be motivating you to live differently is not just so that you can be a better person. It's not just so that you can feel better about yourself. It's not just so that you can expand 
the Christian brand, if you will, it's to bring glory to Jesus. The whole purpose of him remaking us to look like him is that his name is made known. His love and mercy is made known. Everything we do is for his glory and not our own. I love that James always brings it back, right? He always brings it back to what brings God glory? What brings Jesus real glory? Some people will call that kind of this doxological impetus, right? When we think about doxology, it's the study. When you think about studying God's grace and God's glory, that is ultimately what we're here for. Right. If you've been to our church uh, many times at the end of our services and you and if you've watched our broadcast at the end of our at the end of our uh, broadcast, you'll notice that we have a song that plays called the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What are we doing? Ultimately, everything is about bringing glory and praising God. It starts with his glory. It ends with his glory. So the way you live and the way we practice sin will say something about God's glory. That's why he starts with that. So he starts with, don't show favoritism as you hold on to, uh, to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There's the admonition. There's the charge. Don't show it. Now, back then, clearly he's going to show you the kind of favoritism that's being shown. There's class favoritism that's being shown there. We're going to look at that in a little bit. The idea of, 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 of how they are treating or mistreating or overlooking and ignoring the poor. Right? That they're showing additional benefits to those that are wealthy at the expense of the poor. But that's not the only kind of favoritism there is, right? I mean, favoritism, again, is giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense or to the exclusion of another. It's just another form of discrimination more broadly, right? Discrimination is this practice of treating one person or group uh, less fairly than other people or other groups. And so we have any number of isms. If you really think about it, every ism, when we use that ism pejoratively, every ism is a form of favoritism, is a form of sin. Whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's nationalism, any ism, anything where we are okay with benefiting some while ignoring others is sin. And we know that God is against that type of partiality. We know that's not who he is. First Peter 1.17 reminds us that our father judges impartially. It means he judges without favoritism. One uh, uh, theologian put it this way. The way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe about God. The way you treat people or the way you mistreat people, or the way you overlook people, indicates what you truly believe about God. So if you want the favor of God, you can't discriminately show the uh, favor to others. If you expect God's favor on you, then you can't just pick and choose who you show God's favor to. Then James goes to verse two, and this is when he gives the illustration. So he gives the charge. This is why such a perfect sermon. He gives the charge, but then after that, he starts to illustrate what he means. So verse two, he says, for if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, so stop there. What is he talking about there? He's basically saying if there's someone that visually gives off or you already know that they have a degree of status, a degree of power, a degree of privilege, 
we see this, and, and there are some places where, you know, uh, the job requires it. When I was in the military, there was something called customs and courtesies. If someone uh, who was an officer of higher rank came in the room, you immediately will come to attention. If you're outside and you walk by someone in uniform who's an officer that is ranked higher than you, you immediately salute them. There are certain things, customs and courtesies that you give that are professional, that are respected, right? But amongst our communities of faith, there ought not be that at all. There ought not be this heightened uh, favor that gets brought to certain people to the exclusion of others. There ought not be, and it should be the, uh, the, the converse should be true too. We shouldn't, uh, in some, you know, we, we've made these jokes uh, because we are such a, a mixed community culturally. We've made these jokes about how leadership in certain churches get treated versus how leadership in other churches get treated. And there are some churches where the pastor is just treated like the king. The pastor is treated like something, someone that is so far above the rest. And so if the pastor comes to your home, he shouldn't have to go and get his own glass for water. He shouldn't have to. Now, if you treat every guest that way, that's one thing. But more often than not, that's what's expected, right? Because of that person in that position. Conversely, there are some other churches where the pastor is just looked at as a hired servant already. And so they treat them even worse than they would treat somebody else in their church. They treat them like, hey, you're supposed to be here. So get the job done. Either in either situation, there's a favoritism there that is not the heart of God. It's one thing to want to show respect. It's one thing to be able to, to, to uh, be hospitable to someone in your home. It's another thing to heighten your love and care based on someone's status or someone's title or someone's skin color or someone's uh, life choices even. That is where it becomes dangerous and that is where it becomes sin. So here you've got uh, this example that James is bringing up, which is probably extremely common and it's not uncommon today. Someone walks in and what they're wearing is so clearly demonstrative of what their status is. So back then this person comes in and he's got uh, 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 very expensive clothing and uh, he's got fine jewelry and what he's wearing, but you, you know this, listen, y'all know if somebody comes into church especially now because in many churches we're much more casual. That's fine. Somebody shows up in, in a suit and tie and three piece and foot. You take notice. Somebody's wearing something that you don't normally see. You take notice. And, and don't, let's not get into what type of clothing is being worn. Because if you're aware of how certain things work and you know fashion and somebody comes in with, you know, some type of expensive clothing and you're like, oh, wow, I know that watch is $2,000 they're wearing. There's somebody. They've got some power. They've got some privilege. They've got something. And here's the scary thing. Our nature is to want to have close proximity to people with power because we hope and almost expect that that will then benefit us somehow. So that's why that kind of favoritism would play out so easily. Because it's like, if I, if I make a good impression on this one, that might then in turn make me feel, uh, give me an opportunity to have something that will enl enlarge me somehow. Or maybe I'll get better treatment on at, down the road at some point. It becomes a form of networking, right? Sometimes people go and they, they see what people are wearing or what they're doing so that they can evaluate themselves and judge themselves. And they're like, well, you know, will, it, can I uh, get an audience with this person so that I can feel like I'm a little bit on their level? Let me, let me spend more time talking to them in order to make myself feel better. 
uh, well-known uh, Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, uh, had a quote that always stuck out to me. He said, some people uh, go to church to close their eyes. Other people go to church to either close. And it's true. People are taking note and making, uh, keeping a checklist on what people have and what they don't. And then they treat people accordingly, which is why we get to verse three when he says, when that person that comes in, who clearly seems to have status, and then you go and say, essentially, here, we want to make sure you get the best seat. We want to make sure that you get this seat of honor. I don't know about you, but I grew up in churches where if somebody famous, I went to some big churches growing up, and, and, and uh, if somebody famous came, they made sure that they like put them in this really good VIP section where a famous pastor visits your church and you make sure to put them in a VIP section. And if you are that kind of VI person, maybe you have gone to a place and try to throw hints out there so that they know to put you in the VIP section. I've seen it, been there. It happens because we engage the same kind of favoritism as well. And according to James, this is sin. You don't put people in a better position just because you think they will help you, just because you think they will offer you some value. We often judge the people who are better off as better. And so we give them preference so they can make us look better. This is why, even though we're not thinking, I want to be horrible to the poor, what we're not thinking, or I want to be horrible to the people who have less status. We're not intending to do that. But at the same time, the functional effect of that is that those people get overlooked. Those people don't get the same love. Those people don't get the same attention. Those people don't get the same uh, uh, care. And this is why Proverbs 14 says, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich, the rich man has many friends. This isn't a good thing. This isn't even a godly thing. James then explains what he means. So he's illustrated it, and it should be pretty clear. On the face of what he has just shared, we should be able to get uh, what he's getting at. But he goes, as a good preacher does, he starts to really dig in. And he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Now, that is such an interesting uh, point that he makes, because I feel like sometimes this kind of a passage um, gets overlooked or gets misused. Because yes, God has chosen the poor in this world. And we see these kind of scriptures throughout the Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Care for the poor. This isn't to say, and I think some people will look at that and go, hey, listen, God has love for the poor and God has chosen the poor to have faith and they're rich in faith. So that is amazing. This doesn't mean it's good that they're poor and it doesn't mean we're supposed to overlook that. All it means is when you go without, you are in a unique position to have to rely on God more than those who have. So by virtue of that, there's an enlarged faith that happens for people who are poor because that's all they can hold on to. That doesn't mean we just applaud the fact that, have, that they have so much faith and then overlook the needs. If anything, if you, if you are a person, if you are any, you know, if you're not poor and you uh, see people that have this faith who are struggling but they, and they don't have a lot, there's so much to learn uh, from folks like that. There's so, much to, so many things to learn about who God is from those who have relied on him far more than you have. And so James is saying, you guys are overlooking the poor and you're treating these other folks so much better. And yet, didn't God choose them to be the ones rich 
in faith. And you know that. You, 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 you're, you're, you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. You've heard the words of Jesus and what he has said about the poor, and yet you overlook them. And yet you have dishonored the poor. That's the word he uses. You've dishonored them. So you've shown honor to one, but you have dishonored the other. Then in verse, uh, in verse six, he says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Now this, apparently you had folks who, and this is the same now, if you have any degree of resources and if you are of repute in any way and you have uh, money and you have status and you have influence, the levers of government and the levers of justice are available at your disposal to use in any way that will be expedient for you. So if you are a person who has access to those things and someone who does not have access to those things, you have any conflict with them in any way, you can use the levers of justice and government to harm them in ways they could never do to you. That's always been the case. The haves have the power to oppress the have-nots. That's always been the case. It's interesting, whenever people get frustrated and be like, Christians, we shouldn't be talking about power dynamics. Power dynamics are all throughout the Bible. And Jesus does a lot, he says a lot about the ways in which power gets misused and abused against those who don't have it. And James, his brother, is saying the same thing. He's like, y'all... Y'all are benefiting. You guys are showing so much honor to these kinds of people. And yet these kinds of people are the very people that will use their power to crush you. So why would you show them? A di he's not saying he is not anti people with wealth. He's not anti that. He's saying, if you're going to, why would you show them extra? Why not completely love everyone the same and then let everybody come to a place of, of real humility in Jesus? Why not let that be the way that you, that you approach people? And so then he gets into uh, these, the, 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 the next part of this that I think we really overlook. This really hit me. Verse 7, don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Y'all, this, this is something to sit in. Have you ever considered, like we hear about blasphemy, and it's like you can't even fathom being a blasphemer, Right? You can't even fathom being someone who would curse God, who would declare something false about God. You can't imagine being somebody that's like, God is a curse. God is horrible. God is evil. You can't imagine even thinking that or, or, or being that kind of a person. You would say, listen, you might struggle and be frustrated and be angry, but still be like, but I know that God is good. And I know that these things are still true. Maybe I'm struggling to hold on to that, but I know that that's true. Can you imagine just blatantly being a blasphemer of God? Well, no, you can't. You know why? Because for you and for, and for me, when I think about blasphemy, I'm only thinking about what my intention is when I'm saying or doing what I'm doing. I'm not intending to say that God is a liar. I'm not intending to say that God is a murderer. I'm not intending to say that God is evil. And yet, according to James, there are things that you can do or say that indeed blaspheme the name of Jesus. What he just said here, what he just laid out here, he talks about the rich oppressing the poor. He talked about the rich uh, dragging the poor into court because the, the poor don't have the same legal representation that the rich do. So they almost always lose once they get to court. As an aside, we see that now in our court system. 
the bail system is one that most would show, and many have argued, that our, bail, our cash bail system right now is just a tax on the poor. You've not even been convicted of anything yet. And yet, if you can't pay this certain amount, you are held in jail or in prison until that bail can be paid or until your court date. What if your court date doesn't happen for another year? and you're in jail or you're in prison and you get into a fight, well, now that's more time tacked on to a crime that you've not even been convicted of. But if you're wealthy, you pay that fine and you, you're out and you're waiting for a year for your trial, waiting to possibly settle the trial because roughly a large percentage of cases are already settled. They never go to trial. Do you see that? Like we've always been about allowing the system to oppress those who don't have far more than people who do have. And God says that that way of functioning is blaspheming Jesus. So you could function, you could intentionally have every desire to love God and even voice your love for Jesus. And yet your life is complete blasphemy, the very image of God and God himself. That's hard. That's hard that I could unintentionally be a blasphemer of God. The ways in which I fail to love my neighbor, the disproportionate ways in which I love people and not others, I can be guilty of blasphemy. Y'all, that is serious. Favoritism is not this innocuous, harmless, victimless issue. The very glory of God is on display or not on display based on how we love or don't love others. So now when you see where James is developing as he is explaining this, he says, you've got these folks, you're showing benefits to all these folks. These are the folks that you should really be like, man, I need to be careful because these are the kinds of folks that may oppress if their hearts aren't right. And he's like, and the fact that you do this, you don't realize that the way that they function, you're wanting so badly to be at their table and their table is a table of injustice, but you want it so badly. And they're the ones who are showing and living out real blasphemy. That's how you know these are likely other Christian believers who are just wealthy and they are blaspheming God's name, the good name. They're blaspheming the good name of the one that was invoked over you, the name of Jesus. Then he says in verse eight, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. What is he doing here? He's basically saying this isn't about finding which person you can exalt above the other. He's not saying find a way to find a poor person to exalt them above somebody else either. That happens a lot where people are performative in this, right? They're like, hey, everybody, we want to show you see this a lot on on websites, Certain ministries, they may not have any kind of real diversity in their church, but the one picture they love to show are the times they went into the hood and helped some kids, or here's some kids we bus in, here's a picture. He's, this, the, the goal is not let me exalt people performatively so that I can look like I'm being equal. He's basically saying the only way out of favoritism is to love other people like yourself. What are you doing when you love other people by yourself, uh, like yourself? You're loving other people like they're your favorite because you best believe you are your favorite. You best believe you are your favorite. You ever considered this? When, when that, that famous passage that we know when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is and he starts with the one that we all start with, right? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Then he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what he never needed to do? He, ne he never needed to remind you to love yourself. 
never needed to remind you to do that. I'm not saying that we don't have times where we have negative things we think about ourselves. But if anything, the reason why we feel so depressed about with the negative ideas of ourselves is because we expect to feel better because we know we are our favorite. We expect to feel better about ourselves if there's something negative. The reason why we respond so poorly or so in, in many ways viscerally to negative commentary about us is because we expect to be better. We know how to, we are born knowing how to love ourselves. We are born, no, maybe not perfectly, maybe with a lot of other caveats there, but we are born expecting something better for ourselves. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor like yourself, ultimately he's saying, you know that you're your favorite. So treat other people like they're your favorite. You know how you love yourself. You know that you're going to make sure that you have what it is that you need because you know you can't make it without it. So you treat other people the same way. So James is basically saying, y'all, we wouldn't have to deal with this kind of partiality if you just love people the way that you love yourself. And this is the difference. This, this brings us to the difference between preference and favoritism. It's because a lot of people will take, well, you know, how you can't make people want to engage in relationships with people that are not like them. And you can't expect people to do that. Everybody has their preferences. And we all do. That's a true statement. We all have our preferences. We all have our biases. We all have our prejudices. We have all those things. But what do you do with it? You see, it's not enough. It's okay to have a preference. You can prefer a thing over another. The question is, do you confer additional favor based on what you prefer? Do you do more for one than you would do for another? Will you only exclusively focus on one to the exclusion of another? Because if that's the case, then your, prefer uh, then your preferential or your preferences have turned into preferential treatment. You see, preferential treatment is partiality. Preferential treatment is discrimination. Preferential treatment is the sin of favoritism. This isn't to say that to treat someone uh, over whom you have a heightened responsibility than others, that's not to say that that is favoritism or it's, it's allowable. If you've got to take care of your family, you're going to take care of your family different than you would take care of maybe someone else because you have heightened responsibility over them. That's why the scripture says that he who does not take care of his own is worse than an unbeliever, right? Here, this is saying the way you function, you're functioning like an unbeliever. To not take care of your family, you're even worse than an unbeliever. So clearly there's a heightened responsibility. So don't confuse that. But when we're talking about just as a community, we're talking about what it means to love people and to love people outside of our community. There cannot be this heightened favor for one to the exclusion of another. Because if you do that, you are, you are guilty of the sin of favoritism. Look at what James says in verse 9. After he says, listen, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. If you just focus on every single moment, whatever it is, individually or larger issues, how do I love that person that I don't even know? How do I love them like myself? How do I make sure that they are going to be able to get the same types of benefits that I have? How do I make sure that they're going to be protected the way that I am? If you think that way in every area of your life, it will be very hard to commit the sin of favoritism. If, however, verse 9, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And this is where he starts to really dig into uh, how sin really works and how God's law really works. Because I think for a lot of people, it's, it'd be easy to say, well, 
Yeah, that's one thing I got to work on. My favoritism issues, I got to work on that. But I love God and, I, you know, and he's got me and he understands and that's it. And James here is saying, no, if you're committing the sin of favoritism without any real repentance and movement to make real change, you're just as guilty in God's economy as a person who is an adulterer or a murderer. Now that's heavy. It's heavy because what he's not saying is that you are deserving of the same earthly consequences of those sins. There are varying consequences for sin in this side of eternity. But as far as what it means to transgress the law slash the heart of God, if you show favoritism, you have transgressed his heart the same way as if you had committed adultery or committed murder. It's not to say that that minimizes adultery and murder. What it does is it maximizes the sin of favoritism. If we treated favoritism the same way as we would treat adultery or murder, what would our communities look like? What would our cities look like? What would our country look like? What would our world look like? If we truly believe that favoritism was just as heinous of a sin as murder, how might we love each other? How might we care for each other? How might the way in which we spend money change? How might, how might the way in which we spend money in other countries, for other countries, change? What if, what if uh, the way that we, uh, we still could hold our preferences, and you might have a preference for one way of living and one way of loving and one way of being, you might have that preference, but what if that preference didn't impact the way that you love people and care about people? How might our world look different? How might the way people understand Jesus change? What would it mean for the church to love people that way? Because ultimately what James is saying is the Jesus you show will always be louder than the Jesus you speak. It's not enough to just say, hey, Jesus loves it. Jesus loves you. I always, that always frustrates me sometimes. We go in, people are like, hey, you know, you see somebody, they're in need or something's going on. I pray for you. Jesus loves you. James is going to get to that later, by the way. And it's like, that's great. I'm glad you're telling me Jesus loves me. I would love for you to show me what it means for Jesus to love me. Because that's actually what we're called to do. What it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. What it means to go out and love people. What it means, frankly, even to go out and make disciples. To go out and do and show and, and emulate all the things that Jesus taught. You should be teaching and showing the way that Jesus loved. And so if you show favoritism, you are guilty of sin. You have transgressed the law. And to sin in this way breaks the law of God. That's why verse 10, for whoever keeps uh, the one point is guilty of bringing it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, don't murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. You see the, you see the principle here. You commit one sin over here. You are just as guilty of breaking the law. Here's the answer. Here is how he, here's the corrective. Here's what he calls us to do. The application here is speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. This says something big to me because this means that it's not enough to just focus on internal. Whenever we're talking about outward acts of, of, of uh, oppression and injustice, one of the things that has bothered me and many others is that within the Christian community, 
we tend to just focus exclusively on, but it's a sin issue. We got to deal with the heart issue right now, y'all. We got to deal with that. And that's, that's not a, we know it is, except it doesn't end there. James goes, yeah, that's cool. Whatever you're dealing with internally, you better make sure that happens because we want that to be tied rightly. But at the end of the day, how you speak and what you do, that's what needs to be shown. Stop hiding behind, well, but it's a hard issue and I got to figure out what, you know, I've, I've talked to people who have said, you know, I, I don't know, I, I can't really act yet because I want to make sure that my heart is, is truly behind that first. I don't know that you necessarily need to wait for that. Honestly, when you think about injustice, some people can't afford for your heart to be in the right place. They'd rather your hands and your feet be there and let your heart follow. If you're going to love people well, you don't always have to be into it. And you don't always even have to have all of the motivations correct. You may not have all that worked out yet. You may have a bunch of internal things to work out. Deal with it concurrently. Don't feel like it's a linear thing because it's the ultimate Christian cop-out. Whether or not your heart is where it needs to be, you know what love should look like. Continue to practice that because people's lives depend on it. What does that mean? It means uh, for some people, they're like, well, I can't really be practicing favoritism because I'm not thinking badly about other people. I'm only choosing to show love to this person, to care for this person. Do not, we've said this many times, do not confuse the intentions of your actions with the impacts of your actions. We can't just be a people that keeps talking about intent. We've got to be a people that cares deeply about the actions of our, what we do, what we say and what we do. And finally, when he says this last statement, I think is so big for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is he saying here? What, what James is showing us is that the way that God's love and the way his law of freedom, that phrase is so good because law is not the law of God was never meant to be this, this bridle, this, 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 this yoke on you, this form of slavery that you just have to keep following at the pulling and the tugging of the person that's leading the yoke that's that's has the reins of the horse that's not what it is it's a law of freedom you are now free to love in the way god loves you are now free to be able to care for people the way god cares for you so if you're going to follow that love of freedom you cannot have judgment without mercy moreover in god's economy judgment is inversely proportional to mercy. So you're not a person that shows mercy. You're a show no mercy kind of person. Then you're only going to get judgment. But in God's economy, mercy always triumphs over judgment. And this is not a discriminatory mercy. This is not a mercy that we show to the people with whom we agree. This is not just a mercy that we show to the people who are in the same camps that we are in. This is not just a mercy that we show to the people who have the right, quote unquote, theology that we have. This is not a mercy that we show to the people who love the right kind of way and love the right kind of people. This is not a mercy that we show to people who have the right kind of pocketbook or the right kind of race or the right kind of background or the right kind of uh, country of origin. We are right now in the midst of yet another crisis in the Middle East. We are in the midst of horrific things happening to the people of Afghanistan. Having been in the military and served in the Middle East, having had to deal with and watch the pain from people that I know who have had people die over in the Middle East. 
over in specifically in Afghanistan, people who have trusted that there would be help for them and that there would be safety and people that have trusted that they can take risks to try to fight for themselves are now being slaughtered. And there is no easy answer to this. There was no easy answer when, we, when, when, when the country went over there to begin with. There, there aren't easy answers. How do you love people in the midst of a war? How do you love people in the midst of competing interests from country to country? But let's just get, let's just get very, very real here. I am noticing, and maybe you have as well, a lot of attention being shown to specific people in Afghanistan that Christians want to care for. I'm seeing people post things like, hey, everybody, we're working really hard to help rescue the Christians in Afghanistan. We're, doing, we're working really hard to make sure that those people who, who believe in Jesus are going to be able to have the freedom to, to practice elsewhere. Again, those aren't bad things, right? We want people to be able to practice their faith safely. But why is it that as Christians, we almost exclusively focus on those people groups, a people group that might make up about 1% of the people there. Not again, doesn't mean we don't care and it doesn't mean we don't do something. But why does it seem to be exclusively that? I'll tell you a story that might really push you, but I want you to consider this. There's a story that I just heard uh, earlier this week. A man had been interviewed uh, because he was, uh, as soon as the Taliban had come in and taken over uh, the, the country, he knew exactly what was going to happen to him because he happened to be in a relationship with a man, his partner, and they were meeting at a coffee shop. And right after uh, they heard the news, they knew they had to disperse and separate. Later, the man got a phone call and found out that his partner had been murdered by the Taliban. They took him, they dragged him away, they beat him, they killed him, then they cut him up in little pieces and then warned everyone else and said, this is what happens to anyone who lives this way, who loves this way, what have you. Now, listen, this isn't to make some big grandiose statement. What, what I'm really trying to get across is, how do you react to that? Even if, if, if you're someone, if, if you're in a place where you're like, hey, this is not my preference, this is not the way, I might even think this is not right, this is not, good, whatever. How do you react to image bearers being treated in ways image bearers should never be treated? How do you react to an image bearer having their life snuffed out? How do you react? Do you still have the same care and concern that they are safe, that they are protected, the same way that you might care about a Christian in the same uh, similarly situated uh, circumstance? If not, y'all, we are still guilty of favoritism. You can't just see that kind of thing happen to an image bearer and then overlook and go, yeah, but the Christians, though, let me focus on them. I don't really, it's weird, like, I, I don't really, I, I care, but I don't care enough to make sure that their life is advocated for. Y'all, that's, that's the difference. You can have a preference. There's lots of debates on whether your preference is right or wrong, whether preferences are rooted in who God is, all those things we have meaningful conversations about. But at the end of the day, your preference cannot dictate how you love people. Your preference cannot dictate how you protect people. Your preference cannot dictate how you provide for people. To do so is favoritism and to do so is sin. To do so is to act in judgment 
and not act in mercy. But praise God that we have a God that loves us so much that his mercy triumphs over his judgment of us. Because if God judged you and showed you no mercy, where would you be? If your relationship with God was predicated solely upon uh, how he judges you relative to his actual law and standard, where would you be? And yet we feel qualified to overlook other people based on how we judge them and show mercy to some others based on how we judge them. May it not be so of those who claim to love God, not just because we want to be right, not just because we want to get kudos, but because the glory of God is so important to us that we will cast our preferences aside so that the mercy and the grace of God abounds. Let's pray together. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, our God, lover of our souls, God, I'm so thankful that you have saw fit to show us mercy and to allow your mercy to triumph over judgment. Father, I pray that we would be a people who genuinely are so jealous for your glory, not just in our lives, but in our very communities, in our very cities, in our very nation, in our very world. We pray that uh, the ways in which we love others, I pray, God, that we would not be a people that are blaspheming your name, I pray, Father, that you would show genuine, that you would bring up and arouse genuine brokenness and heavy heartedness over all the ways in which we overlook others so that we can uh, in turn love uh, other people with whom we agree. Father, I pray that you would expand our ability to love. I pray that you would uh, allow us to see places where we're just operating in judgment and not operating in mercy. God, we know that issues are tough. Preferences always get in the way. So God, I pray that you would cut through our very preferences so that we can still show indiscriminate love, indiscriminate care, indiscriminate favor to your image bearers, regardless of our preference. God, we know you would prefer that we would be perfect. And yet that preference doesn't stop you from loving us and making us perfect. May it be so with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's receive this final blessing from God, the final benediction from God, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one whose mercy triumphs over judgment. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And may all of God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.